0: All right, we are into our series of um, the Churches in Revelation. And so last week, Steve preached uh, as an introduction to this series of messages that these seven men will preach. We're excited about it. We prepared long and hard. We pray that you show us grace as we stumble along, as we say, stumble our our way along to success. But I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the church in Ephesus. The name of my message is called, Will We Lose Our Lampstand? But it could probably rightfully also be called, Could You Lose Your Lampstand? Of course, we have the lampstand up here, and it's a golden lampstand. It doesn't say golden lamp, it says golden lampstand, so we want to be accurate here, okay? Okay. So I'd like you, if you would, in respect to God's word, stand as we read. It's not something we've normally done in church before. We only have a few verses here, so it shouldn't take too long. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, you toil, your patient endurance, and how you... Bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you: that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Join me in prayer, if you would, please. Lord Jesus, we come before you with open arms and open hearts. And open minds, Father, to learn from your word. Father, teach us about the mistakes the church at Ephesus made, so we may avoid those mistakes. Father, they were offered great mercy, and we need mercy, Father. Every day we need mercy. I ask that you put your Holy Spirit here among us, Father. Walk among us as you did the lampstands, and we'll give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Just to give you a little background on this church, uh, of course, it's not a stranger to most of us. There's a book written about the church at Ephesus. It's called the Book of Ephesians. And um, to talk about Ephesus, it was actually a, a boom town in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And if you think New York City, that would be Ephesus. It was a center for finance, it was a resort center. It was a financial district, it was a center for the arts, and uh, it was a key Roman city at that point. In fact, it was the largest city in, in Asia Minor. You know, today there are a few statutes, there's a few statues left, a statue to Diana, who was their main goddess. It was also a, a center of great idol worship. So when Paul came on the scene, uh, there was a great um, amount of idol worship, many different gods, but Diana was the greatest and uh, as time went on, uh, Ephesus lost its influence in the Asia Minor area. In about 200 B.C. or A.D., it, uh, it went out of, I don't want to say went out of business, but it ceased to exist at that point because the silt from the river uh, plugged up the harbor and they were no longer a seaport, a main seaport. So they ceased to really be a significant influence in the region. So what I'd like you to do is go back in the Wayback Machine with me for a second and talk about some of the history here with regard to Paul and how the church first started. Back in Acts 19 and 20, there was quite a bit of information about Ephesus. And when Paul came on the scene uh, in one of his missionary travels, he came across 12 disciples, 12 new believers, who had not been baptized, didn't understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he took them under his wing, baptized them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and thus began the church at Ephesus. They also became the leaders. And at first, the Jews in the temple uh, welcomed these new believers. They were there to give them light and also a better microphone. (laughs) Technology is a wonderful thing when it works, right? Okay, can you hear me better? Is that better? All right. Mom can hear me all the way in the back, almost in Roscoe. All right, so uh, where was I? Oh, yes, uh, so the... The disciples went to the to the temple, and they started working there in the temple. Initially, the Jewish leaders, they said, Yes, we will welcome you. You've got new insights to this Messiah. But as time went on, they were rejected and driven from the temple. But the gospel was preached throughout the entire region. And the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 12, uh, 19 and 20, talks about how successful they were. Nearly everybody heard the gospel, and there were many converts. And because they were converted to the Christian faith... Many of the idol worshippers got rid of their idols. They never worshipped in the temple any longer, in the, in the, in the idol's temple. Uh, and so it, it affected the, uh, the entire economy. The silversmiths were upset because all of a sudden people weren't buying silver to offer up to the pagan gods. And so they had a revolt and, and almost uh, uh, caused those particular disciples to become martyrs if it wasn't for the fact that God intervened and the riot was quelled. And so during that period of time, God blessed them with many miracles. Paul was able to commit to uh, perform many miracles, and he remained with the church for three years. Three whole years, that he was able to preach, teach, and disciple those people. They had a tremendous advantage that many other churches on his missionary trips didn't have. And in fact, when he left, do you know who he left behind to help disciple these people? Timothy. He left behind Timothy as well. So they had the advantage of Paul. Then they had the advantage of Timothy, and it has been said that John made Ephesus his home as well. One of the greatest examples of Christian love and unity we see in the New Testament occurs in chapter 20, where Paul knows that he's got to go to Rome. He desires to go to Rome, so he's got to sail from where he's at there in Asia Minor to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And he calls those elders that he had been working with so diligently all those years. And he called them to himself, and he gives final instruction to what they should do in running their church. We don't have time to go over all those things, but what he basically does is he he challenges them. He says, beware of the wolves that will come in from outside, and also be be aware of the fact that there's going to be people internally that will come and try to disrupt things. They'll try to twist my words and, and twist the words of Jesus. Beware of these. And his charge of them was to guard the flocks. Elders, you guard these flocks. You guard over the people. You watch over their spiritual welfare. And he, spent, he prayed a special prayer of commendation over these people and over these elders. And they were so much in love with one another, with this agape love that we're talking about today, that they wept openly because they knew that they would be seeing Paul for the last time. He got into the boat and he sailed off to Jerusalem. So the church had a very great start it was a wonderful start and so my first point is this that God extends his grace to the church God extends his grace to the church Now we're going to get out of the way back machine fast forward 50 years 50 years into the into the future where John is now writing his letter to the church at Ephesus And you ask yourself well why this letter why letters to these seven churches This is kind of odd because, you know, we don't hear of him writing in this book letters to the church at Rome, letters to the church at Jerusalem or Corinth or these other places that Paul has been. So why did he do that? I don't really know. But I do know this, that there was a purpose for writing these letters. And what I believe that uh, Paul was trying to do is to prepare. Now, Paul, excuse me, Jesus was going to do in, in writing these letters to Ephesus was he wanted the church to prepare. He knew that in the future... There was going to be great persecution. There was going to be great upheaval. There was going to be an onslaught against the Christians. There was going to be a great spiritual warfare in anticipation to the second coming of Christ. And throughout these, these seven letters, he constantly admonishes these particular elders, or these particular angels, as he calls them, To be conquerors. He wants the people to be conquerors. He wants these people to be prepared to serve with him in his new kingdom upon the earth. They're going to rule and reign with him later on. But, like any good field commander, he wants to make sure that his troops are ready. So he's going to evaluate the church. Are they prepared for the tribulation that follows? Now we know, of course, Christ has not returned yet. So this book and those letters to that church are just as relevant to us today because Christ has not returned. Not yet. He hasn't come the second time. So we're to prepare ourselves. So the words that he preaches to these people, the letter that he has to the people apply to us equally as strongly. Are they prepared? And are we prepared? So let's go to the text, to verse 1. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, I was a little bit perplexed about who these seven stars were until we looked at the verse above in verse 20, just above. It says the seven stars are the seven angels. And who are the seven angels? They're the seven messengers, the seven pastors. And the seven churches are the seven lampstands. So that answers that question pretty quick, doesn't it? So the one thing I notice about this is that it says here that the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Jesus holds these leaders in his right hand firmly. They are secure. They are confident to know that Jesus is actually writing directly to him, to, to these particular seven stars, to these pastors, so that he can go, they can go and preach that message to the people. So the seven churches, the seven lampstands, that's important. But here's something else that's really significant to me. The symbolism of, of a lampstand and a light is really important in our understanding of the scriptures. And there's many examples where it talks about light and illumination and lampstand. Let me give you one example. In John eight twelve, he says this. And this is, this is Jesus speaking. He says this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus actually claims to be the light of the world, the lampstand, this illumination to the world. Jesus is the light. But he also says that we are the light. If you look at Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And if these churches can only understand their importance, they could impact the world, the future, during this time of tribulation with a proper illumination. And it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I would say to you, he who has an ear, let him hear today what the Spirit says to the church at Rock Valley Bible Church. He is walking among us today. His Holy Spirit is just as active and walking among us to influence us and to evaluate us today as back in those days. Verse 2 starts out, I know your works. Let's stop right there. Nothing escapes the eye of Jesus, does it? He knows our past. He knows our present. He knows our future. He knows all about our thought life. He is not unaware of anything. And he knows who is listening to his call this morning, he who has ears. You know who's, he knows who's not listening to his call this morning. But he says, I know your works. And he begins taking the church through a process of evaluation. Evaluation and accountability. Now, let me say this, that the Christian life is a process of calling to evaluation. God evaluates us continually. He evaluates us through the word of God, through the message spoken to us by the Holy Spirit, and through other people. It is a process of evaluation. It's also a process of self-evaluation. And this is something that we should welcome. David said in Psalm 26, 2, Test me, O Lord, and try me, and examine my heart and my mind. And we must also continually to evaluate ourselves because in Second Corinthians, Paul says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Now, this is not unusual for us. We understand that we have to evaluate ourselves because how many here have a job? Let me see if the rest of you don't have jobs. Yeah, we all have jobs. We have bosses. And what is it the job of the boss, Brian? Make sure that you're doing your job pro- correctly, right? To evaluate you. To evaluate you. We're under evaluation constantly. So the question is, after this evaluation, did they make the cut? Now, let me tell you about a story that happened to me. Something that happened to me years ago when I was in the military... I was on a team, and one of the last things I did as an officer in the Army was to evaluate a National Guard unit out of Pennsylvania. And I was on a team of about a dozen different other, other soldiers, and, and the head of our team was a colonel. And so it was my job to evaluate a company that came to the field, National Guard unit came to the field, and they were supposed to set up something called a perimeter in defense. And what that means is this, that they were supposed to set up in anticipation to a counterattack by the enemy and it was my job to get on my clipboard and to evaluate their efficiency and their effectiveness in protecting their perimeter well i thought you know being a regular army soldier that these people were professionals as well and so it was my job to sneak in through the lines to penetrate the lines to test them to find out if they were prepared well the first thing i did is i saw a soldier standing up against the tree and he failed to challenge me with the password ooh that's bad You want to have a password and a countersign in order to get through the lines. Not only did he not challenge me with the password, he was drinking a bottle of beer. I'm going, what is this about? So I asked the soldier, uh, specialist, can you send me to to the command post, to your company command post? Yes, sir, it's right over there. So I went to the command post, and I got there, and I could not believe my eyes. They were having a party. They were having a... A high-ho time. They were drinking and having a good time, playing cards, doing all these things that were contrary to army policy. They were supposed to be setting up a defense in anticipation for an attack, a counterattack from the enemy. And there they were having a party. So I pulled the company commander over to the side and I said, uh, Captain so and so, what what's going on? You're supposed to be setting up machine guns properly and setting up coordination with the artillery in case you are attacked. He said, well, sir, he said, you have to realize something. This is just a two-week vacation for us. We're in the field for two weeks, and, and we're, we're here just to kind of have a good time, and, you know, we're prepared. I said, wow, I've never seen anything like this. Well, I was embedded with them for two weeks. I was there for two whole weeks, and I kind of got to know these guys and kind of liked them a lot, you know. And so the end, toward the end of my particular evaluation period of time, uh, we were sitting there talking with our staff, and the colonel asked me, well, what do you think about this this unit, this company, and his the company commander? I said, well, they're kind of good guys, sir. I think that they'd make it okay. No, Captain, tell me what your honest opinion is. And I said, sir, if they went to combat, they would all die. They're not prepared. And I gave him a, an overview of what I had found out. He said, well, what are your actions? What are your recommendations? And I said, well... Sir, I believe they should be relieved of their command. They should be shown the door, given their ticket home. He said, that's the right decision, Captain. That's what you should do. And that's what he was. He he was relieved of his command. He was fired. Those officers were let go completely because they were evaluated and found lacking. Well, we're going to find out today how the church of Ephesus is doing by comparison. So we go on and we say, okay. How is this evaluation process doing? Jesus says, I know your works. He says, I'm well aware of what you've done. He says, You toil. And in the Greek it basically says you're sweating profusely. You are a serving church. You labor to the point of exhaustion. Every day that you have your doors open, your people are there. If there's a community project that's available, they're there. If they're there for if there's a prayer meeting called, they're all there for prayer meeting. They're a working church. They're there to serve each other through funerals and weddings. And did they have bar mitzvahs? I don't know. Maybe they had bar mitzvahs in those days or not. I don't know. But they were there to serve one another. They just didn't do stuff. They went overboard. They went overboard. They went far and away. And they were really unified in their efforts. Believe me. They were an organized church. And they were very good at what they did. So they toiled. And it says, And your patience, patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil. So patient endurance means that they are a steadfast church. They persevere. They never give up. They're standing shoulder to shoulder. Now, I'm sure they had opposition along the way, but they came alongside of each other. They persevered. They never gave up. They never threw in the towel. They were really a persevering church. And when times got tough... They kept going. In fact, they had 50 years of history, remember, to be actively working in in God's work. They cannot bear with those who are evil. And this is an interesting one. It says here, it says, they do not bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and and have found them to be false. So, they're really orthodox here. They're very, very separated from the world. They're looking to remain unstained from the world, and they have standards. And they probably have some kind of an ordination council to ferret out these people that claim to be apostles. They got rid of these guys. They knew their scriptures. They were very aware of the word of God. And so the other things that they were trying to do is they were trying to figure out who the wolves are. People coming in from the outside that will challenge them constantly. And people that will come in and actually be among them who will twist their words. Paul said 50 years earlier, be aware of these people. This church has great grace. This church has great grace upon them. The commendation prayer that Paul prayed still is true at that point. And then finally, in verse 3, it says this. I know you are enduring... Patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Persecution. There has been some persecution here. You're loyal to Jesus. You know, when the Jews came against you in the temple, you bear under that pressure. When the silversmiths got after you, you were able to persevere over that tribulation. When the Romans, over time, persecuted them, when the wolves came in, when the twisters came in, when the Nicolaitans came in, they were able to persevere. This is a stellar ministry, folks. I don't know if this is, this is an Acts 29 ministry, but boy, I'll tell you what, it probably comes pretty close to it. It's a really good ministry. So after 50 years of ministry, God's grace is still on this church. What a success story. What a success story. They're right up there with the true heroes of the faith. But you know, folks, I want you to know something, brethren. Nothing escapes the eyes of Jesus. He saw something there that he didn't like. During his evaluation process, he detected a blind spot in those people. And the blind spot was enough where they would not overcome. They would not be able to serve with the church in the final days. Jesus has a way of looking under our spiritual bed, looking in our spiritual closet, looking in our spiritual basement, And finding those things that we've carefully hidden away out of his sight. So we have to look at point number two. God extends his mercy to the church. And they need a great mercy because of this terrible, terrible sin. What is mercy? It's undeserved kindness. It's undeserved compassion. It's undeserved forgiveness. And so in verse four, Jesus says this. He says, but... I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. But I have this against you. You have abandoned. Now, in our small groups, we have uh, one of the questions that goes like this. How did the original audience understand the passage? Now, if I were in the church listening to that, reading the letter and I heard all those accolades and all those wonderful things and how great we were. We're up there like with the spiritual superstars of the day. How would I respond to that that particular criticism? Wow. I'd say, Jesus, he just got through telling us how great we were, how we're all stars. Now you say this? What? That's terrible. (laughs) Jerry, you like that, don't you? You know, here's the little word that you have to be aware of. It's this little three-letter word, but. But changes the whole dynamics of that conversation. But changes the whole direction of his evaluation. It's not just a counterbalance. Well, you know, here, you, you guys are so good over here, but there's this little but over here, so you're a little bit better. No. That rebuke destroys everything that Jesus said prior to that time. In terms of importance... Didn't say that wasn't important, but in terms of importance. You know, this particular verse could not be followed up with a verse like this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of thy Lord. It wouldn't be followed up that way. In fact, no, this is a stinging rebuke to this church. It's a hidden sin to those that were observing this church because they looked at that church and they saw how well they were doing. But folks, it was the 800-pound gorilla in the room to Jesus. He saw it. It was right there. He couldn't miss it. It was a mile wide. It was a blind spot a mile wide. You know, and this first love, and that's what I call it, and it says, love you had at first, I like to call it first love. We'll talk about some of the difference here. But this particular first love that they no longer had, it was gone by intention. It was gone by attention. You see it says abandoned. They abandoned the first love. You know, somebody just didn't um, hijack their first love. You know, nobody, nobody uh, lost it. It wasn't on a laundry list where they were going to the grocery store and they, they just lost that laundry list on the way to the grocery store. You know, it, that, that particular first love wasn't misplaced. It wasn't forgotten. It was forsaken. It was forsaken by these people. Now, it it doesn't say here that they don't have any love for God. They still have love for God, but it's a different kind of love. It's a different kind of love. It's not their first love. So, can a church function without this first love that Jesus is talking about that they should have? Yes, evidently, you can be a serving church and left your first love. Evidently, you can be a steadfast church. And still have left your first love. Evidently, you can be an orthodox and separated church and left your first love. And evidently, you can be an enduring church and also left your first love. You know, I think about the vernacular in my day, in the, the old rock and roll days, there was a, a song by B.B. King called The Thrill Is Gone. How many remember that song? The Thrill Is Gone. Some of the older folks, too. <laughs> exactly right, The Passion is Gone. The fire is out. Whatever they had, they don't have now. It's no longer existent to them. You know, in fact, uh, it's someplace there. There's some kind of love there. But, you know, the love they have now is somewhere buried down in the list, maybe equal to or below uh, jobs, kids, vacations, hobbies, friends, exercise, cars, money, eating out. And maybe they're doing some religious stuff along the way. That's where this love is at, folks, right there. You know, God says... You know, you guys used to be somebody to me when you had relationship, but it no longer is there. You don't have relationship. So what is this first love that we refer to in scriptures? Well, uh, very simply uh, simply stated, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who's a famous theologian, says it's a matrimonial level of love. He says, The love of the church of Christ is typified by the love of the wife for the husband. It is unselfish love, love in which there is No thought of self. The submission of a self-denying love to a love that denies self. I like to call it the agape love, and that's really what it was. Agape love. Now, I'd like you to turn your Bible to John 21. We're not going to skip around very much in the Bible this morning, but I do want you to turn over to John 21. And this is where Jesus has reappeared to his disciples after he's resurrected from the grave. And he has a little conversation with Peter. And I think Peter kind of sums up the kind of love that the church of Ephesus had at that time. He says this in verse 15. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, "Feed my, tend, my, tend to my sheep. Verse 17, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said that the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, if you don't understand the impact of the Greek, Greek language here, you've missed the whole point of it. Because Jesus is asking Peter, he's asking Peter, do you love me with an agape type of love? Are you willing to go to the death for me? Do you love me unconditionally with agape love? And, and Peter, he responds by saying, well, well gee, Lord, uh, yeah, you know, I, I like you a whole lot. I really do. Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me with that agape love? with that unconditional love, with a love that's going to, to reach out across all these generations and all these people. Are you willing to die for me as a martyr? Well, Jesus, I, I, I really like you as a friend. I, I, I think you're great. He still hasn't caught it. Finally, Jesus asks him the question, Peter, do you even like me as a friend? That's why he went away grieving. He saw his level of love was not there. And so I would submit to you that the church of Ephesus had this phileo, this friendship type of love at that point. They still love God. They still find that God has a place, but it's different today. The thrill is gone. That particular passion is over. So a better way to describe it is this way, brethren. Um, This is the kind of love that we, we have to have toward God. You know, there's certain things that God cannot do. He cannot change or violate his character at all. He can't sin. He can't act contrary to his nature. He can't stop existing. So something else that he cannot do, he can't be second place in our lives. He cannot take second residence in our lives. Whenever we put him second in our lives, even to the best things out there, to Jesus it's unacceptable. What's the greatest commandment? If I were to ask the kids what the greatest commandment would be, what would you say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? Exactly right. You know, he demands it from us. We're to be first place in his, in his life. Otherwise, you know what we've done? If, if he's down there relegated to the, oh, the friendship type of love, we created an idol. Because all these other things are just as important as God himself. That's not right. That's not acceptable. He's not going to stand on the platform and be uh, anxious or willing to accept the silver or the gold medal. There's just no way. He's got to have, excuse me, the silver or the bronze medal. He's got to accept the gold medal every single time. He's got to get the gold. Now, what are some of the results of losing our first love? You know, if we don't prioritize God in our Christian life, You know, our Christian life will go from relationship to religion. We can go through the acts, but we don't have the relationship. We can come to church. We can participate in communion. We can teach Sunday school. We can go ahead and come to prayer meeting. We can do all these things, but they're nothing but hollow religious acts. It will go from passion to duty. In fact, when it goes to duty, now we become pharisaical. Now, these are practices that we think that we're winning points with God, it can go from vine to trellis work. You know, we talk about this. There's this book called The Vine and the Trellis that we read as elders, you know, and the vine is what has the life, the vine. The life is in the vine going up, and the trellis is merely there to, to support the vine, isn't it? The trellis is important, but it's there to support the vine, not vice versa. But if we don't put Jesus first with agape love in our lives, we are doing trellis work, not vine work. So it's important to know the difference. We can become so busy in our efforts that we've left him and don't even realize it. We've left him and we don't even realize that God's out of our life. You know, the church is a great place to hide out from God. It really is. You know, if, if people don't come to church, we, we kind of have those people figured out, right? They don't come to church. Well, they, they don't love Jesus, right? But what about the ones that come to church? What about the ones that come faithfully every Sunday? Do they love God? Do they love Jesus? Maybe. We have to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to kind of judge that, to find out if they have priority love. They could be putting on a good show. But Paul says this, if they don't show this first love, this priority love, this agape love, they're no different from a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that person is nothing and gains nothing. Has nothing, gains nothing. Here's a little test for you. You know, and I've talked to people all the time about this. You know, how do you like your church? Oh, my, my church is wonderful. My pastor, he's the greatest preacher in the world. Man, I'm blessed every day that I hear him preach up there in the pulpit. And I, I preach. I love, I love how Steve preaches. I love your preaching, Steve. I've, you know, I, I don't like to go anyplace else on Sunday morning. This is where I want to come, hear you know, Steve preach. You know, but but here's the thing if if you value preaching and being edified and being blessed by the sermon more than you do being concerned about God accepting your praise, your worship and your adoration, you've lost your first love. You've lost that first love. That's wrong. If you gotta find time to spend with God when you make time for everything else, you've lost your first love. You really have. And there's other telltale signs of losing our first love. You know, uh, no love for for the lost. Powerless prayer lives. Stingy giving. Uh, Holding grudges against people in the church. You know, I see that a lot. People having grudges against people, you know, in the church. I've done it. I'm guilty of this stuff. I'm preaching to me. You know, and I'm not got beyond this. And on and on it goes. You know, are there cobwebs in our closet that need to be cleaned out? Do your priorities give you away as to where God stands in this love? Are you merely giving him friendship love? Or is it Agape? Have you lost your first love? Well, God has a solution to recapturing our first love, and it's found in verse five. So going back to Revelation, chapter two, verse five, he says this. He says, "Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent." And do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, I've heard other preachers say this. I'm going to repeat it. I didn't come up with this idea my, myself. But but the solution, the Rx to this problem of losing our first love is captured in three words. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. The first R is Remember. He says, "Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen." He tells us to look back at a time when God, lav- God lavished His grace upon us. For these Ephesians, they had fifty years that they could look back. They could see Paul, and they can see Timothy, and they can see John, and they can see these twelve and the church fathers, and they can they remember what it was like to have to be excited about Jesus in those days. And the church flourished. It was wonderful. But for you and I, do you remember when God redeemed you? You know, all, all I had when I got saved was John 3, 16 and a hymn. That's it. But I had Jesus, too. And I was excited. I was just a young boy at that time. The hymn was, Just As I Am. Just as I, You remember that, that hymn, Just As I Am? That's what I remember. That's what drew me, drew me to, to Christ. I got so excited, I went back and told my all my kids in the gang in Chicago, you know, in my youth group there in my neighborhood, you know, all about Jesus. And you know what they called me? Holy boy. Oh, you're just being holy boy. You know, but there was one boy that did come to Christ as a result of that. Praise the Lord. You know, but I remember, those were mountaintop experiences in my life. That's when I had first love. That's when I had agape love, you know. And so, how about yourself? Do you remember... Significant events that you would call maybe milestone type events in your life. Uh, maybe when you had your first convert, you saw your first convert. Or maybe, uh, for me, it was learning more about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. How to walk in faith and how to walk by, uh, with the Holy Spirit. And how to, be, how to spiritually breathe and how to witness by faith. And, and some of these other uh, things that I learned along the way. Uh, later, you know, I, I, was, I was on my mountaintop experience when I understood doctrines of grace, Steve. Doctrines of grace just had me, it was almost like getting born again. (laughs) What freedom I had at that point. And then another mountaintop experience for me was was becoming an elder and serving you people. Man, that supercharged my batteries for agape love at that point. It was wonderful. So whatever the significant event you had, God says, remember how it was at that time? But keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. The second R is repent. You know, in the Bible, we're only taught to repent, or we're only you know, told to repent under one condition, and that's sin. That's the only time we're told to repent. In this verse, he tells us twice. He says, "Repent twice." He says, "Remember, therefore, from where you fall, repent." And at the end of the verse, he says, "Repent again." This is sin, folks. This is serious business, okay? He says if you lose your first love, you have sinned. And you've got to do two things. Number one, you've got to confess that sin to God. You've got to say along with God that you have sinned. What you've got to do is you've got to say this. You've got to say, "Uh, God, I've sinned against you. You don't say, uh oh, I made a little boo boo, I made a mistake. And I kind of missed that one along the way. No, you've actually sinned. You've got to confess that the sin, but that's not the hard part. You know what the hard part is? I mean, anybody can claim Jesus a savior, right? People all the time say, "Oh yeah, I accepted Jesus a savior. I acknowledge Him. I acknowledge my sin, but make him as the Lord. That's the important thing. Making him Lord. At this point, you've got to, you've got to change direction. That's repentance. That's turning around. That's you're going south on the highway, and you realize you're going the wrong way. You turn around, and you go north. Repentance, in the Greek, means a change of thought process. That's what it means. Change direction. Turn around your life. Now, why is this important to do? Why is this, are this repent important to do? Well, because John 14, 21 says this. Now, listen to this, folks. This is really important. This is a key verse. John 14, 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That love is agape. He it is who agapes me. And he it is who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I will show myself to him. I will disclose myself to him. I'm going to make him real in that person's life. Myself, I'm going to to be part of him. So the question is, do you want relationship? Confess and repent. Here's the third R. The third R is to repeat those works which you did at the first. See, there's nothing wrong with the works they were doing at Ephesus. There's nothing wrong with the church, with the works we do in this church. That's important stuff, right? He says, do those works now as proof of your repentance and your reconciliation. The proof is in the putting. Let's get that work out there because... We've repented because we're restoring our relationship with God. The works are prompted by relationship and not duty, it's not prompted by responsibility. These works, therefore, become the first fruits of your first love. The first fruits of your first love. Now, he continues to talk to us about mercy, and this is really important. Really important, because at the end of verse 5, there's a warning there. And the warning says this. If you don't follow these instructions to the letter, I'm going to come and I'm going to take the lamp and I'm going to turn this lamp right off and I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. It's going to be gone unless you repent. He says, if you no longer prioritize me as your first love, I will no longer disclose myself to you. You know, you can come to church. You can sit in the pew. I don't want to point at you, Ryan. Um, You can come and sit in this church, but God's not here with you. He's not going to meet you here. You can ask, and he's not going to answer. You can knock, and he'll tell you to go away. You can listen, but you won't hear anything unless you repent. Wow. You'll expect all the goodies, the blessings and the gifts from him, but they won't be available to you. You're going to ask for wisdom. You know, how many times do I ask? Young people come to me and they ask me, what, what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Well, are you right with God? Relationally, do you have that agape relationship with God? That's how you're going to know which way to travel. If you don't have it, you won't get wisdom. It won't be there for you. It's gone. In fact, he's going to write on your life the word Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means in the Old Testament? The glory is gone. Right? That's when the the Israelites gave up the ark to the enemies. And they were defeated in battle. And God's glory was gone. It was removed from them. Removed from them. And we as a church could lose our lampstand as well. We could lose our lampstand. Well, here's the third point: God extends His promise to the church. You know, in verse six and seven, let's go there real quick because this is the positive aspect of of what we're doing here with what we're reading. It says, "Yet this you have; you hate the work works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." So He's saying here that. Um, you know, there's a group of guys and gals out there that they claim to be Christians, but they're abusing grace. They're called the Nicolaitans, and I think somebody else is going to preach on this topic in the future here. But, you know, I hate what they're doing. But you hate what they're doing, too, and that's good. Because, see, I see signs of life. You're thinking like me. And so he says, that's good. Keep it on. And that's what I call the sandwich method, the sandwich method. You know what? Have you heard of the sandwich method, Jared? In, in either counseling or, or teaching? You know it's it's basically it's 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 commend people first then correct and then commend them again at the end. And the reason why you want to commend them again is because you don't want to keep them hopeless. They don't want to be devastated by that that rebuke. They want to be able to be affirmed again. And that's why we use the sandwich method. And that's wonderful. That's the way Jesus is doing it here. He's affirming these people. He's saying, "Hey, this is great. What you're doing is is outstanding. You need to go ahead and uh, continue to hate what they're doing. You hate what I hate, and that's good. Now, church family, my question to you is, do you hate what Jesus hates? Do you hate what Jesus hates? Because that's part of agape love. You can't love the world and love Jesus at the same time. It's impossible. You can't do that. So then he goes on in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice, he who has an ear, let him hear. So he's not just speaking and writing to the churches. He's speaking and writing to us individually. He who has an ear, let him hear. And that's important. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's really important to know, because I was trying to figure out, well, what kind of a reward is this? You know, eating in the paradise of God. But one of the things we have to realize is that in ancient times, eating together, in fact, I like the passage that Steve read this morning, about Jesus at the, at the feast. In ancient times, eating together was a, a very intimate affair. When you were invited over to somebody's house to sup at table, that was a sign of honor. You were an honored guest, and there was bonding going on there. And you, as the guest, were making yourself open and vulnerable to these people. You become transparent to one another. It's a, it's a, it's a brotherhood type of relationship. And he says this, okay, Jesus said to the one who conquers, conquers what? Has victory over would be another way to conquer. What are they trying to conquer here? They're trying to conquer this sin of losing our first love. If you conquer that sin of losing your first love, then you're going to be rewarded big time. Jesus says, I have a special place to eat. It's a place in paradise. And you're going to not only have a special place to eat, I'm going to give you some special food too. You know what that food is? It's fruit from the tree of life. Sound familiar? Where's the tree of life mentioned? In Genesis, right? Even Adam and Eve weren't given the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. But we will be if we're overcomers, if we share in the victory, if we conquer. We're going to be able to eat from that tree of life as well. So it's a special time, a special place, and a special type of food that we will partake in. In conclusion, I'd like to give you a little story here. And and I I kind of swiped this from a pastor friend of mine, so it's not my original. But he talked about Niagara Falls. Anybody here ever been to Niagara Falls? It's a beautiful place, isn't it? Well, you can see Niagara Falls from three different points of view. You can go into the hotel room at night and see Niagara Falls from a distance. You know, it's maybe a mile or so away, and at nighttime, it's all lit up, different colors, beautiful colors. And during the week, they shoot fireworks off, too. And you stand back, you go, wow, isn't that awesome? Now, there's another way to view Niagara Falls. You can go up to the park itself, and you get close to the falls, and you can feel the spray on your, on your face. And you can hear the roar, the awesome roar and thunder of the falls. And you can see it. It's right close by. But there's a third way that you can see the falls. You can get into a boat at the bottom of the falls called Maid of the Mist. Anybody been in the Maid of the Mist? Okay, you could probably talk about it. I've not been there at the Maid of the Mist. But you could go in that boat. What do they do? They give you a raincoat, an umbrella, and you're drenched and you feel not only the awesome power, but you see the beauty. And you see everything about that particular fall, the roar, and you get that experience right up front. Well, this verse says this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, some, some Christians, or people that call themselves Christians, are, they're kind of content to sit back there like being in their hotel room and seeing Jesus off in a distance. And they go, wow, you know, Jesus really is awesome. I kind of like that Jesus person, you know. As long as he brings me good things in my life, I, you know, I think I want to stick with this thing, you know. And then there's, there, there are people that are, want to know more about Jesus. So they get out of their hotel room and they go down to the park, so to speak. And they begin to experience Jesus firsthand. They begin to see the, the awesomeness of Jesus and experience his, his effects in their life, you know. And then there's, then there's a third way that you can experience Jesus You know what I'm going to say, right? You can get in the boat with Jesus. And you can see the beauty. And you can feel his awesome power. And you see his glory rain down upon you if you experience his first love. Let's go to prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this letter to the church at Ephesus that shows us that even the greatest of churches and greatest of Christians can lose their way. And lose their first love. Father, convict us of this terribly dreadful sin. Father, we know that you show us grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we look forward to the reward of the promise. And so, Father, grant us grace to repent. And may we be conquerors. May we have victory over this sin. So we might be able to sup with you in paradise. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.